One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, welcome back. It feels like we've never been apart. The reason that we began to do these podcasts, the big interview with me, is football gives you a shot of adrenaline and happiness and does things that you can't understand. Time and time again, it builds to climaxes that are as dramatic as anything that art, theatre, opera ever invented. One of the guys that we always aspired to talking to was Jamie Carragher. And the reason is, when you approach reporting on football for a living, you can make a choice whether you want to appear cool and always in the right, whether you let your passion for the subject spill out at the risk of being maybe called naive or boyish, but I like to approach my work with my heart on my sleeve, open, honest, and full of a passion for the subject. That matched with Jamie, who played that way, who inspired me, who I loved watching, learn, and change. In this interview, he'll talk about how he rates his ability, what made him a player to lift four European trophies. He'll make me laugh, as I knew he would, and he'll take me back to the first time I met him, which was in a Legends game in the Olympic Stadium in Munich, just before Chelsea Bayern Munich in the European Cup final. He was there with his boy, who's a talented footballer. And he told me about having gone as an Everton fan to, I think, the quarter of the semi-final of the Cup Winners' Cup with Everton when he was eight years old, taken by his dad, because already football at eight, particularly Everton in those days, was an all-encompassing passion. We're going to go on, we're going to talk about Steven Gerrard, obviously, Alex Ferguson, Gary McAllister. We're going to talk about Istanbul. And today is the anniversary of Istanbul. Therefore, I give you one of the heroes of that night, one of the heroes of the most incredible football match you will ever see, Jamie Carragher. Jamie, welcome. Thanks for taking the time. No problem, thank you, Graham. The joy of this is that I want to talk to people that I admire, people who have inspired me, but people who I suspect feel the same childlike excitement for football. You never lose that adoration of football, its eccentricities, its skill, its stories. But I want to start with a little bit of trivia. Right? I've got a scratch that I've never itched. <laughs> Liverpool and Ring of Fire. Oh, OK. Why? <laughs> I really want to know. I broke my leg in 2003, and so on an away game, I went on a coach with my dad and friends who went on a away game from a pub in, in Kirby called the Fantail, and you know they'd go home and away everywhere, and they passed the time, they'd, a tape would go in, and there was fans of uh, Johnny Cash, and they used to sing it on the coach, and then it, how, I don't know where it, so that's where I first heard it, and then it just fired itself coming into the stadium and in the ground on that Champions League run 2005. And I think it may have been Leverkusen away. I think we're the first time it sort of originated. And my dad and a few others try and take the credit, I think. He <laughs> uh, used to go on that coach, the fantail coach from Kirby. But uh, that's the first time I heard it. I didn't know it was just the lads on the coach liked it, but how it got sort of to be this theme tune that you associate now with 2005 and, and a song that still gets sung now especially on away games or they play before the game at Anfield just, just went from there Johnny Cash so 
I think the credit should go to uh, the lads on that bus from the Kirby. But you'll never, none of us will ever be able to hear that again without the hair in the back of your neck standing up. It will just transport you back to, I think maybe you and Stevie with your yeah, arms around yeah. each other in front of a camera, with scars wrapped and the cup's been lifted. It's iconic. It's like a where were you moment when you hear that song. I can't listen to it anymore. Yeah, I mean, that, that pitch that we've got, that's, I think, the iconic pitch for both of us. Kissing the European Cup, singing along to that. And it's not even the words, it's uh, about the words, you just sing along to the tune. And I think you'd have moments like that when something special happens, like Istanbul. There's lots of quirky things that people will remember on the journey. It's not just the games, it, there's loads of little things. And I think that was part of it. You know, the song, that was part of it. I mean, in the past, clubs have had the FA Cup final, they sing a song, don't they? Or something that gets linked to it. That was, uh, but that was the one and only Johnny Cash. You've reminded me, I didn't think, but we all go in the cup. With Daddy, yeah, we all exactly. do. What, what impact does music, or the right music, or atmospheric or unifying music, what impact does it have on a mood, a squad, a dressing room? I ask you that because there was a stage in 2008-9 when, for some reason, Pep Guardiola insisted that they played a Coldplay, Viva La Vida, or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it caught like Ring of Fire. And even the players who didn't like it, it then became not just a superstition, it was something that unified. And then they put it on in Rome. And I don't know how they'd arranged it. And it's booming out over the speakers in Rome and they've just beaten Manchester United, whatever. And it felt more than just like, oh, there's a song that we all know it. What does the right music do in a dressing room or in a season? Or Well, well the music in a dressing room, I was even though I was a senior professional, they, they say they normally sort the music out, but... Music for me, I never sorted that out, but what I do remember, even as a kid, I was an Everton fan. I can remember the songs I sang as an Everton fan in the mid-80s. I remember then sort of watching Liverpool teams as I was just getting in, and the songs you used to sing, and the, the songs you'd associate with at a certain time, like, you know, the great John Barnes, you think of the Anfield rap, you think of, you know, John Barnes and the, the world in motion. As a kid, I, I, I still think of the songs the other day. I think Everton's FA Cup song was Here We Go. I always remember, at the time, Everton and Liverpool wanted to win the league one year. And the song Everton's used to always, hand it over, hand it, hand it over, Liverpool. So you'd be like... So as much as the football, you remember those sort of... I remember football being on the terraces songs rather than being in the dressing room, if I'm being honest. I was never a massive music fan about that band or that yeah, artist. Yeah. It was more... The songs I sort of sang on the terrace. You see, I know you grew up a blue, but when you grew up at a distance and I grew up in the 60s, the thing that you taught was that singing from the cop was witty. Mm. A pop song would come out, they'd take it, they'd adapt yeah, it, yeah. or they'd have their own songs, and there was real wit. Now, I don't want to go down the negative route, because one of the things that soured football is what modern kids sing to mm. abuse people. But there used to be football, music, singing and wit used to be absolutely knitted in, particularly in your city. I think Liverpool fans, especially with the cop, and I think where you never walk alone come from. I think it was, I think it was right in the fifties and sixties. Used to basically play the, the top ten in the charts or the top twenty before the game, and I think they maybe picked up on that song. I think that a famous one. I think they sang to, I think Gary Sprake was it, Careless Hands was it, uh, to <laughs> Leeds keeper. Yeah. Did he throw one in? Yeah, well, maybe cost him the title. Or? Yeah, exactly. Things like that. So, I mean, fortunate that the city you're from, you have that. So that was, I think, a famous one that we heard in the past. So, Istanbul, 10 years. Mm. Can't believe it. But you won the European Cup. You did what Liverpool players are supposed to do. You know, it was a fantastic thing. And I, and I went back and before we chatted, I looked. And you won four European trophies, 11 senior trophies at Liverpool and a youth FA Cup as well, which is a really, really big trophy hall. Yet, I won't swear, but you lived in a time of Alex Ferguson. You had to go up against him when his single motive to begin with was to knock Liverpool off its mm. effing perch and to make Manchester United great. Do you look back and think that he was a curse on my playing life? Have you found respect for him subsequent to your career? Could that have been 22 trophies or mm. 25 trophies if, no, if not for him I've, I've got massive respect for Ferguson I, I actually look at my career and, and think of the trophies that we won every player no matter what he's won will always say he wants more and I'm no different mm. I still think did I do enough could I have done more I should have done more I should have done this should have done that but not even Ferguson he's that's one of the greatest managers of all time the greatest Manchester United manager there's ever been I think that's right even just surpassing some Matt Busby but mm. we were up against Mourinho 
one of the best managers of all time. Arsene Wenger, one of the best managers of all time, especially in our game, in the British game, if you're thinking, well, certainly the top ten, if you're talking about the top five or six maybe managers to ever manage in our country, those three names have got a great shout of being in there. That's what we were up against at that time. So to actually look at what we come out with and what we won, trophies we won, considering the competition at that time, I think I'm not lucky, but sort of proud of what we did, considering the competition. But in terms of Ferguson, no, I mean, I always got on brilliantly well with Alex Ferguson. I didn't know him that well, I must say. Two or three times we had words in tunnels, at half-time, at the end of a game, both passionate about your team. But he wrote me a nice letter when I finished. So I uh, I got his address off Michael Owen and uh, returned the favour, you know, written my letter back. And uh, I actually asked, could I, I meet, meet him, is probably the wrong way, but sort of have a, what we're doing now, have a football chat, chat. have a meal. Because, yeah. listen, you're rivals, but any Liverpool fan or supporter who doesn't have respect for what he did and all his knowledge of football, that's just, that's just stupid. So, and he only lives half an hour down the road, he's only mentioned like he's at the other end of the world. So I went and met him and had a couple of hours with him, had a meal with him, talking football, my experience at Liverpool, his Man United teams, how it started off, you know, talking about players now, then. And, and the one thing I took from it is memories. I mean, my memory's pretty good about football, remembering games when I was a kid and games when I played. But I, I mentioned the game to him. I mean, I was an Everton fan as a kid. And I mentioned the game to him in 1987. I went to Old Trafford and uh, Everton won the league that year, 87. I think the game finished nil-nil. And I don't know how it would come up in conversation, but he told me a story about the game. I'm thinking, that's how long ago was that? He knew what system they played. He played three at the back. He had to pop up one of his players, and it was Graham Hogg, that he'd mm. give the formation away in the paper the day before. And, you know, all that. I'm thinking, to remember that, the games he's been involved in, especially, no disrespect, that is, not an <laughs> ageism uh, slant on him, but the games he's been involved in, how old he was to, to instantly know what had gone on a little bit in that game, I just thought it was fascinating. I know I don't look back at him and think, listen, who knows? I, I think I was fortunate to have Janet Hooley, Rafa Benitez, uh, Kenny Daglish, yes. Roy Evans. So I think, you know, whoever your manager is, but there's no doubt he had a massive impact on the uh, sort of situation with, with Liverpool and Manchester United. As I've listened to you, I don't know you very well, but in the times we've spoken, it's matched with what I saw when I watched you play. A fantastic ability to read the game, to inspire, to lead, to give the maximum that you had on any given day or any given season. And remember, I grew up in Aberdeen, so he did for my club and my mm. life what he then went on to do for... And it always struck me that you're one of the players. I know he wanted to sign Pepe Reina. He was very keen on Pepe Reina. One stage, didn't happen, whatever. You're one of the players I've always thought not only he'd have chosen if he could, but I suspect you'd have blossomed under that kind of mm. you know, leader-captain relationship. Never happened, never going to happen. But it's the type of thing that... Well, he, he'd have to manage Liverpool. I wouldn't be playing for Man United, I'm sure you're that. I thought it must have been strange to watch him doing all those things and you think, geez, that's what we should have been doing here. Mm. You know, you had great managers. But he almost gutted the club and built the whole thing, the standards right everywhere. Mm. And that's maybe one of the things that I took from rereading your book, that you lived in a, at a time when you were, you know, you were blessed of played with some exceptional footballers and, you know, the impact of Julio to begin with and then Rafa and winning in Europe, all fantastic. But that comparison in overall standards mm. where things weren't maybe done correctly or the right attitude wasn't shown right around the club, that was a curse that you had to live with in your career at Liverpool. Now, I love football and I always look at other managers and the managers I mentioned before. I'd love to have played under Ferguson, Mourinho, Wenger, these great managers you look at, Pep Guardiola. People sort of ask you what managers were like, different ones, strengths and weaknesses. Of course, they all have that. But I never, even when a manager didn't quite work out for Liverpool or it didn't go as well as we would have liked, I never said, oh, he was doing that wrong. I always took something from them. They're not idiots, these people. Every manager, I'd always take the good bits from it. People won't say, oh, you take away the bad bits. They always learn something. There's always something they take different from the last fella or they saw something differently or, you know, different things. I was... I was a sponge with managers and why? things. Why? Why? Why did you have your mindset like that? To be honest, I, the club I was at—I mean, you see other clubs around the world, and they talk about you know players being maybe more powerful than a manager. You see that maybe in foreign clubs, maybe the big Spanish giants. But at Liverpool, the respect for the manager is probably bigger than maybe any other club in the world in terms of players and fans. But when Liverpool win, the fans—it's the manager. I think it starts with Shankly. It's, it was. 
okay, they've had great players, mm -hmm. but the fans, it's always the respect for the manager at Liverpool, I think, is as big as anywhere. It's always, always flags of the managers mm -hmm. on the cop. You know, Shanks and, and, and the ones who won the European Cup, there's that flag. And there's great players who played in those teams. And maybe at other clubs, it's, it's about the player who won us the Europe. Whereas I think at Liverpool, it's the manager. So there was, I always think the manager's 20, 30 years older than me. He's got more experience. I've never been a manager. I've never, ever questioned a manager or said, why are we doing this in training? Or why are we doing that? Or, and I think it was, it was funny. I think Benitez maybe was used to maybe players questioning him, maybe a Valencia and different things. And when he first came, he sort of laughed, at, not laughed at us, but a bit, everything he'd say we just do. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, he, and he said, I think in a training session, he sort of, we didn't know what he was doing, but it was a bit of a test. It might have been a day before the game. And he said, I want you to do this many runs. And we just did it. Halfway through, I think he said, no, why have you let me do that? A player abroad would say, but why would, why would we do it? Whereas, I think the English mentality, or my mentality, is just, the manager says you do that, you're doing it. It's, it's a soldier's mentality. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're a warlike people. Yeah. And if your captain or your sergeant major says do something, mm. we do it. Mm. I think that's in our genes. Yeah, exactly. I honestly do. When he said that, he said, all right, lads, stop the exercise. The point wasn't to get you fit. The point was to say, you know, stuff it, Rafa. When he said that to you, were you stunned? That's Rafa's bizarre. The, yeah, Rafa's the, the type of manager. It's all about football for him is the brain, and that suited me to answer the ground. I mean, I, even though I was aggressive and I wasn't the biggest, I wasn't the strongest, I wasn't the quickest, my game was about being alive upstairs and, and reading things yeah. and situations. So I, I love working with him. What he was trying to point he was trying to make is it was a way of him sort of saying, you know, use your brain, think about what would you know that type of thing. But it is the English mentality, and, and, and even at times in those big games under Rafa, you think of Istanbul, you think of Cardiff. 12 months later we never won that by sort of being clever that was hard really that was everything against what he's about but those type of games at times the emotion takes over especially at Liverpool the supporters maybe myself and Steve you, get, you do get too emotional at times and and those games certainly were played with heart and not, not certainly how Rafa would have liked to have won them but we did in the end a win's a win and I wanted to go back to that as well because I'm a, I was born in Britain and I grew up, as I said, watching Alex Ferguson teams who did that mix you're talking about, which for Aberdeen it was about skill and, and tactics and breaks, but it was also always about heart. And when I kicked the ball at any level, it was about winning and any old how, really. Mm. And I moved to Spain to try and adapt and learn and grow up and see different things and teach myself. That was the principal reason. Training sessions, as a journalist, training sessions were open. Mm. That was about the dominant reason for me moving over there because I thought mm. I can watch training, I'll write better. And then... You know, I look at that Istanbul triumph and I look at one of the, the abiding British things was winning in adversity, winning from 3-0 down. But the thing I wanted to ask you about and focus on was winning when, you, when your muscles won't work anymore. Because mm. it's equally iconic, apart from your brilliant tackles, which I think were on Thomason and Shevchenko and whatever. There's a point which anybody who hasn't suffered cramp doesn't know that all this chat about childbirth is rubbish. Cramp, <laughs> cramp's a problem. You could move. Mm. At a certain stage, you look like you're going up Everest without air. Mm. How did you get through it and what was going on in your mind to dominate the situation? I, I wasn't even thinking about the cramp. My main thing was to get back on the pitch as soon as possible. When you're in that sort of zone, people are the crowd, it's like it's not there. It's playing a Champions League final for Liverpool. It's like you do anything not to sort of scupper the chance. I, I needed to get back onto that pitch to make it 11 v 11. The longer it's 10 v 11, they got an advantage of something. My first thought was, okay, stretch off, but there was never any thought that I would come off the pitch or I'd go, I never went onto the pitch worrying, is the cramp going to come back? It wasn't, you're just in a zone, I think, at that, at that moment in, in a game of that magnitude. It's just, I need to get back on, I need to get back to my position. You know, I need to, we're playing a back three now, I need to get back to right centre back. Have you played physically more tired than that? The cramp was worse 12 months later in Cardiff against West Ham. We'd had a longer season. The day at Cardiff that day was so hot. And it wasn't just me that day, that was players on both teams all over the pitch. That was where I was feeling it a week later when I joined up with England for the World Cup. When you were training, just, this still didn't feel right. But when you play centre-back, you don't normally get cramp. It's not the position that you do that much running, to be honest. But no, in that game, a lot of it, I think, was stretching, clearing balls. The cramp was in me groin. Normally, you'll get cramp in your calf mm -hmm. through running. This was more, I think, stretching, trying to cut out crosses. Your focus is when you need to get back on this pitch. It's a mentality thing. It's were you talking? Can you remember if you were talking to the players around you while you were playing? After I'd come back on? Yeah. Just oh, that. yeah, yeah, I will have been. Oh, no doubt, yeah. Can you picture it? 
I can't, but I, I can't remember me going ten seconds without saying a word on a football pitch without <laughs> in general organising or shouting at someone or geeing someone up. Yeah, oh yeah, I'd have been, yeah, I'd have been in there. At three three, can you remember what you were worried about that what Milan had? Yeah, about them scoring another goal. It's strange the mentality of football. You go from three one, three two, and you think we've got to get a goal. As soon as you go three three, something cut. You think, oh, we've got something to lose now. Hmm. You have that mentality. It's like when a team are winning two another half time. Why do the other team always come back into the game or put you under? Pre- it just, it just, it just happens. It's just, it's just the way it was. But I think what we put into those six minutes or the start of the second half, I think eventually sort of took its toll on us. And we were playing against a team who were far better than us, far better than us. And then they changed it round a bit. Rafa had to change it round a bit. Sergio came on on the left because we had Smyser, who was a number ten, if you like, playing right wing back. That's how the team had to be set up second half. Stevie went there then. So I think certainly an extra time we were thinking penalties. If, if we get to penalties, we've, we've won the lottery. You know, we've we've come back from three 0 down with three three. We're hanging on against the best side in Europe, and it took everything. We had me making tackles, Jersey making unbelievable saves, Shevchenko missing an, an absolute sitter. But no, towards the end there, it was, it was get to extra time penalties. Before we start the tape, I told you that one of my favourite Monday night football discussions was you and Gary, September twenty thirteen, talking about David Luiz. Chelsea have just lost to Everton. Mm. And there's a really good philosophical debate about what should a defender in the Premier League do? Should he defend? Can he come forward? Names like Baresi and PK are mentioned. It's a right good debate. Mm. But you're quite staunch about defenders defend. Mm. And defenders, you know, you shouldn't be one-on-one or going on a run or whatever. When the penalty was called in Istanbul, where were you on the pitch? I was on the edge of the box. I was in the box. You were? <laughs> I was a right centre-back stepping out with the ball, football and centre-back. Stepping out or driving right to yeah, the opposition box yeah. and sending off a nice little ball to Milan Barros, no? Yeah, yeah, that's in a back three, stepping what out. Happened? So slightly different. But yeah, I think I played the the ball into something. Did I get 1-2? I, I think I played the ball, stepped out and played and, and did Barros flick it round the corner for Stevie? Yeah. You play the ball from about eight metres outside the penalty box, right in the Barros's feet, who yeah. lays it off to Stevie. Yeah. Before the tackle's gone in, there's a hand Yeah, 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 <laughs> and it's I'm yours. There. I'm trying to get someone sent off, I think. What possessed you? I think, as I've knocked it into Barros, you know what, I think a lot of the, you're playing then, as I said before, on emotion. I'm not saying it was the wrong thing to do, stepping in. But the way we were playing, it was just like, so we're 3-2. So this is for the penalty, make it 3-3. So what I'm saying is, in them two minutes, everyone's just like, fragging me the ball. You're bashing, you're actually looking for the ball. I'm, I think I'm looking for the ball back off Barros. That's why I carry on my run. And he goes the, I go one way and Stevie goes the other. And he flicks it around the corner to Steve. So I think I just carry on my momentum. You'd have hit it. Oh, If, if yeah. he'd laid it. Yeah. Top, st- top, top right now. or top left? It'd still be going where Serginho's <laughs> penalty went, I think, in the shootout. But uh, no, I think you get caught up again with the emotion, the crowd. I'm not saying it was the wrong thing to do, but... More often than not, it's not something I would have done. But it's something you used to do as a kid, you know, you'd eight on your back at school, you mm. played striker, then you played creative midfield. Mm. You, you were digging into something that you knew you had. Yeah, I mean, listen, I think every footballer, whatever he plays, will always play centre-forward or centre-midfield when he's a kid, you know, for his uh, school team, Sunday team. So it's nice for that to come back in the middle of the European Cup final, those <laughs> memories. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. It reminded me that I had one of the glorious interview with Gary Mack about the Alibis game, how chaotic and fun that was and what a fantastic team you had. You were equally knackered in that one, weren't you, for a different reason oh, altogether? Yeah. I think we were gone physically and mentally in that game and we'd played Arsenal three days before and won a cup final from nowhere the heat was unbelievable that day at Cardiff again we'd won it late on and I always remember going to the UEFA Cup final on the coach and normally a cup final there's a bit of nerves there's a bit of tension mm. on the bus and I remember looking round and it was like we were playing a normal game not that we weren't we were just physically even being in like the zone takes it doesn't take a lot, but it's like everyone was just like we were shattered. Played every cup game we could possibly play. We won the three cups. We ended up getting to the Champions League, which we did three days later, and we were awful. We beat Charlton away four 0 the first half, which could have been four 0 down. We were that, but Alaves on a normal day we did beat them three or four 0 I and I always remember the celebration afterwards with the Alaves game. And I always remember it was like the bath at the end of the game. It was more like a swimming pool. It wasn't a bath. And everyone was just sitting there without saying it. We just won the UEFA Cup. Everyone was just sat there. It was like, <laughs> it was so strange. I can picture it now because I thought, this is so strange. But I was part of it. You're just physically gone, physically and mentally gone. Like you couldn't even celebrate. Mm. You just won one of the most, probably the most amazing UEFA Cup final of all time. Mm. We'd got the three trophies, the, the treble of the three cups. And we had a game three days later against Charlton, but I don't mean celebrate in terms of you know getting on the air or something when you went back to the hotel, but even just you, you see pictures, don't you, people laughing and joking in the bath, throwing a trophy around or, you know, old-fashioned pictures, whereas we were just absolutely shattered. This is the joy of doing this, because I've never heard anybody say that before, but you've immediately made me think, by sheer fluke, I was invited into the World Cup winning dressing room, and I came out telling friends, I've seen our pub teams or... Sunday lunchtime team celebrating an away win against Duffers mm. with more passion than the Spanish boys. A quick hooray, the Queen coming in, roughing it out in tears, painted face, the lads posing with the cup, and then whew, like that, mm. flat, flat. Not flat, unhappy, but like yeah. you said, no adrenaline, no mm. leaping about. I think what happens is you, you have a lot of your celebrating on the pitch, what happens when you win a trophy. So I think sometimes that takes it, not takes it out of you, but you feel like you've done it. But certainly with that Alaves one, it was different to the others. You'd still... I can't remember getting pictures in the dressing room of the cup against Alaves UEFA Cup, whereas if you're in the FA Cup or the yeah. Carlin Cup or the European Cup, you're still all... But that one was just like, thank God it's over. You see, that you, what I was meaning by that is that do you think that as fans we underestimate exactly how drained and exhausted a footballer can yeah, get? I think so. I think especially mentally, because physically I think we probably all played football at different levels and for us to get absolutely shattered is a different level to the, the man on the street or the supporter, but maybe not understanding or getting the, the mental tiredness which I think is more which affects your decision making yeah of course yeah it's the build up to the game it's how you're playing well yourself or the team doing well have you made a mistake in the game it's we have to win the pressure of we're playing Alaves in the final well, don't forget we're expected to win mm. this comfortably can't lose because oh, it's Alaves it's 4-4 yeah. it's golden goal with a few minutes away from penalty shootout it's you know it just it does it takes you time cup finals are normally the end of the season obviously the end of the season so it's that sort of build-up for sort of nine or ten. When months. you're watching though now with analysts' eyes, do you have to be careful in what you'll say about what you've seen in a player because you're able to factor in maybe more things about why positionally they might be wrong or a pass has been misplaced or they've put the ball over the bar when really they should have scored. Mm. Do you have to factor that in? Or if you factor that in, you're always going to sound too careful on the TV. I think basically us on the TV, we've, we've got to put ourselves in the position of the players where obviously me and Gary have probably have been there in different situations or scenarios because you have so much experience at different games, big games, winning, losing. I think last year's game with Liverpool-Chelsea, we analysed the game on the Monday where uh, Chelsea you know, stopped Liverpool winning the league. But it was more the fact of the second half, the effect mentally the first half had had on Liverpool's second half. So they were shooting and crossing from stupid areas. Now... More often than not, you'd pick that up if it was the middle of the season, just saying stupid decisions, 
why are they doing this? Why are they doing? Now that's what we said, but you do factor in the fact it's desperation. Mm. It's not, you know, it's a mental thing. It's not something that they've been doing all season. That panic, that sort of mindset of oh, they think they're already thinking of what what we're going to lose, type of thing. And it's like you just do irrational things on a football pitch. It's a kind of fear. Oh yeah, yeah. That one was with that game. I've played in games like that, of course. That's what I'm talking about the cup finals mm. with Rafa, where we played with the heart. It was that? It's a fear. I can be getting beat to West Ham in a cup final. So, I mean, Stevie Gerrard scores the goal that makes it a 3-3. Greatest goal we've ever seen in a cup final. I'm on the edge of the box. I'm the centre-back. Why am I there? Do you know what I mean? Emotions take over. You find you're back to being a kid on the playground, running round. That's that's what you like as a kid. And we took her into a big cup finals and won. One of the things I know is that you're a real... Maybe you always have been, but increasingly, maybe increasingly since you stopped playing, you're a real student of the game. I guess you are, but... When you're leading Liverpool, when you're, you're playing for top trophies, you focus on your working sphere. But you are a student and you learn and you go abroad and I've seen you interviewing Xavi in Las Rosas, the Madrid training ground and down with Xavi Alonso at Savinerstrasse in, in Munich. What has been the process of stopping playing and learning more in depth about some of the continental ideas and decision making and attitudes that aren't about the things that we grow up with, which is heart and commitment, physique and pace. I'm not saying Britain hasn't produced players of brilliance and craft. You know I'm not saying that. For example, the degree to which you admired Xavi was long-term and it even overtook my admiration for him. How do you see a blend between the players you admire from France, Spain, Italy and what we do naturally as, as British athletes, British players, British coaches? Listen, I think if you blended the two, you'd have... Is the perfect match. You know, we talk about our passion, that this and that. I think the thing I'd love to get to the bottom of, but that I can't quite put my finger on, is that I speak to foreign players, we watch the way they play. People say they're brought up differently, but we have then foreign coaches who come here who've coached these players. And then I watch Mourinho set a team up. I watch Capello. I've seen Ericsson. I've seen Benitez. I've seen Julier. They're more British than the British managers. I had Brendan Rodgers, Roy Evans, Kenny Daglish. Two Liverpool legends, if you like, in the boot room mm. way. Brendan Rodgers, whose influence you could say is maybe a Spanish influence, the way he plays. Yep. They wanted me to play a lot more football than Rafa Benitez did and Gerard Houllier did. So then people always throw at us that, that the foreign managers or the foreign players, why do they play this and we do this and, and do that? But that's something I've got to get to the bottom of. I can't mm. quite work out... Did they come here and coach us a certain way because we were a certain type? And would Rafa Benitez coach differently in Spain? Or, or is it just they're the type of managers we got? Mourinho's maybe the best foreign manager. You can't tell me he plays ticky-tack of football or he doesn't. So that, that's something I... But what did Capello do when he got the England job? He played Heskey up front. Eriksen played Heskey up front. Julier buys Heskey. Benitez buys Crouch. If that was a British manager, they'd get absolutely battered for that. Then shoot me down. This is what it's always felt like living abroad for the last 14 years. You meet people of that generation and what they've been influenced by is the same thing you and I were influenced by when we were growing up watching, say Liverpool. Like we both kind of grew up in a Liverpool mm. dominant era, me older mm. than you. And the impact that had on football thinking on the continent was absolutely gigantic. They were in a spell then of what I'm asking you now, but they're, how do we do that? Mm. In those days in Spain when Liverpool were dominant in the 70s and 80s, the football wasn't as technical in Spain. That was growing somewhere yeah. else. That was happening as a yeah, as a process of how they taught youngsters and what they wanted to emulate. Now, I can't speak directly for Capello, say, but Italian football and British football, I think, has probably had more in common about yeah. structure and defence and organisation. Not identical, but in Spain, Liverpool had an enormous impact on people's thinking. Yeah. I'm not blown away that Rafa brought things like that to mm. Anfield. He wanted to be part of the tradition. He wanted to write himself into that tradition, which is not a bad thing to want. But what I go back to what I'm asking more about is, rather than the coaches, the players, because I think the players are different. Mm. My impression is that broadly, particularly Spain where I live, are producing players that are coaches on the pitch, probably more well, intelligent on the grass. Yeah, I, I, When people always say, the foreign players are technically this better than us. Now, as a whole, I'd say, yeah, but I've been with Alonso and Steven Gerrard. Alonso's not better technically than Steven Gerrard. 
Now, I'm not saying it's a competition between the two, but the best English players are, are technically very good. I think we're lacking a lot more in the understanding of the game. Mm. Massively in England, massively. I think we've got great technical players. So people may say, them, why don't we keep the ball? England are good technically to keep the ball in a tournament. But I think our understanding of which pass to play, do we keep the ball for keeping sake now to take the sting out of a game? Do we do that? As soon as a player comes into Liverpool, I can know straight away he's got a good understanding of football. I mean, I always read books, read magazines, think about the game. I was probably different to most English players where without my sort of understanding of the game, I wouldn't have been a player. I'd have been maybe a, a player lower down or whatever. What My understanding of the game got me to the level I got. It wasn't me, me pace, it wasn't me strength, it wasn't me power, maybe it wasn't me technical ability. It was my understanding of the game. So I always like talking football. And you can, if you speak to Alonso, you know, they understand things. Listen to some British players. You know, Stevie Gerrard understands the game. Danny Murphy is very good understanding the game. But a lot of them wouldn't watch football, didn't speak about football. You'd come in after a, a big game at the weekend. When I was playing a lot of the time, I'd be in Arsenal Man United, both going for the title. If they played, I mean, it was like you had to watch it. But you'd come in and some players wouldn't even know the game was on and things like that. So I think, how can you possibly learn or improve as a player yourself without... But I think that comes from maybe even being... I loved the game as a kid. But I was always interested in you know, what other people thought, how they saw the game. I think the big thing now is with coaches is... Is it how you play or is it just about results? That's always a mm-hmm. but certain yeah. cultures fall, yeah. I think, at times into two different categories. That's a, a debate in itself. But uh, there's no doubt with foreign players, I think, their understanding of what to do. Like, I was watching the Europa League semi-final. Napoli played Dnipro yeah. midweek. And I, I was watching the last 20 minutes. And uh, just watching Dnipro play. So Napoli needed the goal to go through. Napoli never looked like scoring. But Dnipro just, just knew what to do. How to kill time, slow the game down, centre forwards getting a free kick. That's a big thing for me, what, what winds me up in football when I'm analysing. I think they call it now game management, that's what the coaches call it, understanding what to do. There's no right or wrong how you play. I don't think everyone has their own style, it's about being successful at it, but understanding what to do if it's nil nil, if you're winning 2 nil, if you're getting beat, if it's nearly half time, it's the start of the game. A perfect example is uh, one of my last years I was playing at Chelsea away. We're 1-1, about 15 minutes to go, and we get a throw-in in our half, midway in our half. And one of our defenders is sprinting to get the ball. And I'm screaming, I'm slow down. Slow down. But the understanding of not knowing that you need to... You're away at Chelsea. One, if you're playing bottom of the league, 1-1's not... You're away from home, 1-1's not a great result if you're away to the bottom team. So sprint and get the ball, we need to win. Away at Chelsea, 1-1's OK. You've made me think there of, of a game that frustrated me. I'm a Scot, so I... You know, I want Scotland to mm. do well, but I lived in England. I reported on England as mm. a you know, World Cup report on, you know, I want the England team to do well. I certainly want them to be better represented. Mm. This is you know, the world's number one football nation. I want, I want them to play with intelligence. And I remember now the build-up to 2008, which was an incredible breakthrough experience for a journalist like me, being with Spain, and they win. And the qualification at Wembley, England-Croatia. Mm. A draw sees England through. Mm. It goes to 2-2. And Steve McLaren's team is, is, is bombing on. He's looking for a winner because it's Wembley, we've got to win. No. Mm. No. Mm. A point pitch in the tournament. At 2-2, defend it as if the, your own goal must be full of your children. Mm. Nobody gets past me. Mm. And what happens, they score, there's a mistake, positioning and all. You know, I'm, I'm looking at it and I think, no other nation in the world would do that. What the hell is it in our culture that we've lost it? Because... 70s, 80s football, Britain wasn't like that. Mm. It was next to no foreigners. What happened? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, where did so all the football brains go? Mm-hmm. TV. <laughs> <laughs> Sitting on the backside yeah. watching it, you mean? Alison, <laughs> you started this by saying I can't get to the bottom of it. I, mean, I don't have a damn clue. Mm-hmm. We've produced some of the best football talents, best football brains in history. There are two or three generations growing through now who think of football as a means just to earn loads of money and mm. have a flash car, who don't sit and talk in the dressing room about problems and resolve them through... That, that's one thing I've learned as well in continental football. Very often, that the footballs will, will be as analytical as you, and there's a problem. As much as the coach will come in and sort it, they'll talk it through mm. week after week on the training ground in the dressing room until that problem is kneaded out and, mm. and they're a unit again. Mm. 
you're laughing at me now because I'm. I, I get very excited about this. That's the reason I do these podcasts because yeah. I want to hear answers from more intelligent mm. people than me, which is what I've got so far. Last little section, I want to question you again about something that has been a bugbear of mine and, that, and of yours at Liverpool, which is the, the whole idea of recruitment, how you recruit players. And there's a couple of anecdotes in your book about Stan Collymore and they haven't researched where he wants to mm. live and so on. And then there's all the way through players who weren't good enough to play for Liverpool who were signed up to today with Balotelli who hasn't worked. Mm. And then you get your club selling Luis Suarez who's had one of the most controversial times in Britain come to the city where I work and he's about to win the treble but if you took a look at recruiting that player based on his actions at Ajax you, you probably shouldn't mm-hmm. what is recruitment of players like from the inside in your experience? Well in terms of a manager speaking to you about players it's normally on international duty because a lot of fans I'm sure the, the club's going into a lot more detail but you'll see someone on match of the day or a goal so you think oh he'd do, he'd do for us it's not until you've got that person with you every single day, travelling, what's he like as, as a, a team member, a squad member, what's he like around the place. It's not just the ability on the pitch. Craig Bellamy's a good one, similar to Suarez, where you'll hear reports of people saying, bad apple, don't go near him. But I always look at it at training and playing. Off the pitch, if someone is a bad egg or gets into trouble now again, you've got to balance out what they're giving you on the pitch. Mm. I call someone a bad egg when he doesn't train properly. He doesn't train a game. Bellamy's a warrior every day in training. Mm. Trains, goes in the gym an hour before. Yeah, he's got a mouth on him and he'll question a manager and he'll have an outburst now and again. But if I was a coach or a manager, the thought of trying to get someone to train every day or give 100%, whereas Bellamy's interested in football. Suarez wants to train every single day. He's an animal. Wants to play like his life depends on it. They're the people you want in your squad. You'd want them without the things they bring with it, of course. But I'd much rather have someone like that than someone, as you mentioned before, like Balotelli, who you're, you're struggling to get on the pitch. You know, that's, that, that's why I want you know, warriors in your team. Now, it's easy for me to say I've never bought a player as a manager, and every manager makes mistakes in the market. I think it's probably the most difficult thing as a manager to get people in, get the right characters in. People always say, oh, we'll scout them properly, we'll, we'll speak to the manager who's had them before. This mm. Everyone sees things indifferently. Yeah. You know, everyone... I might have just said that about Craig Bellamy, but you might ask Graeme Sunes, who's managed, and might go, oh no, not a chance. It, yeah. There's no. That's why I sometimes think in recruitment, there's that many people involved in it now. It's like, I always think if it, you know, you'd have a scout, he goes and watches a play, and he said he did this well, he did that well. But I might be different. I might even think he did that well. I might think mm. that was wrong. Do you know what I mean? It's I do know. You've, you've, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. What are you originally looking for? How good is your eye? How good are your contacts? I, I suppose that comes from trust. You wouldn't have someone working with you looking for players if you weren't on the same sort of wavelength. I get that, but I always think I'd have to. I feel like I'd have to see everything. I read. I think it was in Michael Carver's book. That there's, there's a guy, Barry Hunter, was at Liverpool. I think a scout. Yeah, right? yeah. And there was an anecdote about they wanted Alexis Sanchez, mm. and they followed him for three days, cafes, restaurants. What does he drink? Does he drink coffee or water or wine? It's probably why you sign for Arsenal, you're getting followed. <laughs> so it didn't come to the perfect conclusion. Okay, point made, which only adds to the fact recruitment's not easy. But I, I look at that and listen to what you say about depth of understanding of a player's personality and behaviour and training and that. And I look at all the stats you get about fitness and position and possession. And There's so much of a microscope on all of that. And it's kind of as if there's a little bit forgotten about how to put that kind of microscope on the guy who's going to mm. produce you all these stats and win you the trophies and have the heart mm. to keep fighting on or to, to lead. There must be a way to understand people better, mm. do you not think? Character. Yeah, there is. I mean, I, I, I remember speaking to uh, Clive Woodward a while ago about like, player profiling. Mm-hmm. I remember rightly, I'm sure he got players, even though he wasn't buying them. When they come into the England squad, he profiled them sort of like you'd have to answer questions and maybe I don't know if a player would appreciate that or not and you get the answer of what type of character he was and he, I think he was just trying to get into football at the time and he was saying I, I can't believe profiling's not a massive part of mm. who you sign and does this player profile go with the one I've already got to make sort of the balance of a team I think that's something he did with the England squad when trying to integrate new players in there I thought that was interesting I'd never really heard it spoken about like that before 
I think a lot of managers now and coaches, you think of the money that you're spending on these players, it might be worth it, might you just get them to fill in a form. I think. We'll close on, on this theme now with just, I hope, fingers crossed, a piece of mutual admiration for somebody I adore. The strangest signing in your time at Liverpool has to have been the guy who the manager six months before picked out in a video and said he's the weakness and who was 35 and had played centre midfield for I think Leicester yeah, at the time. Yeah. Coventry. And yet Coventry, and yet came in and just yeah. worked, played like a genius. Gary McAllister. Yeah. Give me a bit of McAllister yeah, in my life, well, please. I, I do remember the meetings. I was playing midfield at that time under Gerard Hulier. And Gerard Hulier's meetings were, were very good in terms of motivating you, pumping you for the game. And I remember him said to me, you're up against McAllister today. You're a petrol car. He's a diesel. I always remember that, you know, because of his age. What an inspired signing by the manager. I don't think anyone could really... Believer at the time. I think they saw him as a, a father figure to sort of Stevie in terms of he mightn't play so much. He may play it because Jamie Redknapp had a bad injury at the time. Mm. So maybe he didn't want to spend big money on someone because Jamie may come back. He got Steven Gerrard. So okay. A bit of a mentor for Stevie. Simply, you know, the attacking central midfield position. But he came in and played that well. That Stevie found himself at right midfield, right back. Because of along, Yeah, exactly. And playing alongside him. Obviously, the First half of the season, I think, was unfortunate with, with his wife's passing, so he didn't play, I think, so much in that first half of the season. But the second half of the season, the run-in, he's remembered most by Liverpool supporters for his winning goal at Goodison, the, the Gary McDarby, it's affectionately now called. And If I had to pick one moment from Derby games, that would be that. Hmm. Seeing him put that, couldn't believe he was going to shoot from there, but he at the keeper, Gerard, and we've, we scored. But along that sort of path, you know, to set pieces he scored, and he got one at Coventry. He got on a Bradford away. And also the amount of set pieces that team scored. He was brilliant at finding someone at the near post flick on. Arsenal were famous for it. But his delivery of a little little dink to that near post flick on and getting goals from it. But I think a big blow to him towards the end of the season, the cup final. Not playing. Not playing, yeah, against Arsenal. And I can totally understand, I probably think it was the right decision, even though he did come on and change the game. But Patrick Vieira at that time was a monster. And we needed Stevie in the middle just for that extra power and pace. But Stevie will tell you himself, he couldn't handle him that day. I mean, that's a game Stephen Gerrard looks back on and thinks, big learning curve for me that I thought I was there. Vieira showed me there's another level to go, which he eventually got. And in my opinion, I think surpassed. But in terms of uh, Gary McAllister, he never played that game, but he was in three days later. Stevie Against Alaves. Exactly. They, I think he was man of the match that game, didn't he? He was. And, yeah. And he, he maybe put the ball... Yeah, it was his... He, he got the, the goal or the assist, if you like. The, the golden goal, assist. The golden, yeah. I think Johan Cruyff may have presented him with the Man of the Match trophy Ooh, afterwards. Not the worst moment in your life if that happens to you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, his son was playing for Alaves, wasn't yeah. he? Jordi Cruyff yeah, Jordi, that day. Yeah. I think for Gary McAllister, I think to leave Coventry and go to Liverpool, and I think even Gordon Strachan was the manager then at Coventry, I think was saying to him, you won't play. Stay here, you play every week. But I think for him to sort of finish his career... I mean, he played for us for a while longer and he went back to Coventry. I don't know if it was player manager or just manager, but I think for him to finish his... He'd had a great career, but never maybe won the those type of honours that he won the only European trophy. Scoring the winner against Barcelona, I forgot to mention that, against Pepe Reina, penalty. You know, ha, so Have you mentioned that to Pepe in the past? Oh, yeah, he had yeah. hair then. <laughs> yeah, oh, I. No, but it was uh, he was a young kid then. That's at Anfield after a nil-nil at the Catalan. There's, there's a wonderful picture, which I've seen a lot of in the Catalan media, of a young Stephen Gerrard running up and screaming in Pep Guardiola's face at the end of the match. As if Gerrard. I seen that yesterday. I no way. He, was he trying to shake hands with him or was he. In his man. <laughs> <laughs> if that's what you want to call it. Yeah. yeah. That's a scout's handshake. Pep's, Pep's, Pep's Saturnine. There's a black cloud over yeah. Pep's head. Yeah. And of course, yeah. It's, it turns out to be his last ever UEFA game for Barcelona. Oh, okay. But, the, and just, you know, the passion in Stevie. Yeah. Pep and the iconic photo. Yeah. Unbelievable. And all thanks to Gary Mack. Of course. Listen, we've finished admiring somebody's talent and uh, laughing. That seems like a good point to stop because that's what football does. Jamie, yeah. an honour, a pleasure. It's good talking to you as it was watching you play. Thank you. Thanks, Graham. Thank you. Magic. Football is often fuelled by laughter, dressing room laughter, training ground laughter, sometimes cruel laughter, but 
it was nice to end on a smile there, and Jamie's a funny man. But the image I'll take away is that comical image of, I'm not moving to United, so Fergie has to quit Old Trafford, move to Anfield and take over Liverpool in order to coach Jamie Carragher. What a, what a partnership that would have been. He's perfectly suited to Gary Neville as a partner on Sky's Monday Night Football analysis because there's always more questions than answers with Jamie. He's endlessly curious and not afraid to admit that he wants to learn and also not afraid to admit, as he did in that interview, that there are things that the more you learn, the more they puzzle you. That moment where, instead of just answering my question, he's openly scratching his head and puzzling about as much as he's learned about continental coaches, say, he still puzzles about why they come to Britain, in the case of Ullier, Capello, Rafa Benitez, and then begin to coach in a more old-fashioned British style than the Brits do. It's not about immediately coming off this podcast, wherever you are listening to it, and saying, well, I know the answer. It's about always being unafraid to pose the questions. That's what keeps us all fresh and interested in football, and it's what eventually changes football. I hope you've enjoyed the chat. I did. A new character would be fascinating, inspirational. And it's, like before, scratched an itch. I always wanted to know why Ring of Fire. Look, there's going to be more coming up. One of the guys that we'll speak to in the future was mentioned later on in that podcast. I think you know who we mean. If you've enjoyed this, the first thing to ask you to do is to subscribe to the podcast on either iTunes or wherever you got it from. Audio Boom seems to be popular. Second of all, if you've got the time and you're, you're inclined to do so, if you like to leave a comment. It's nice to know. It's good of you to feed back on Twitter, but leave a comment on the download site. It helps us keep this free. It helps us keep the content coming. If people can see that those who have listened to this have enjoyed it. And I want to say on behalf of Backpage Press, who've produced this and who came up with the brilliant idea for this, thank you. Thanks for being there. It's nice to have these chats, but it's even better to share them. Big thanks to everybody who listened, to those who produced, but above all, thank you, Jimmy Carricker. Ten years ago today. Well done, lad. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.